Well, Aaron is uh, away on a little getaway this week, so we have a uh, privileged guest pastor this morning with us. But before I invite him up, I'm going to have a quick announcement. Uh, the PLEA team um, mentioned that there was uh, still some spots open, and they're really hoping to get a few more signed up. So if you are still thinking or you feel like the Spirit might be leading you or you've been wavering on an idea of going on PLEA or not this coming spring break, they're going to extend the deadline, which was originally yesterday, for a couple more days to this weekend. So um, you can talk to Tanner Brasser. Uh, who else are the... Who else are the... Who is... I know Tanner's one. I can't remember the other gal. Who the, Emily. Emily Tuke. Okay, sorry. Tanner Brasser, Emily Tuke. You can email one of those two and let them know that you're interested in going on the PLEA this spring break. So encourage you to do that if you haven't done it before. All right, well, this morning I get to introduce my friend and pastor, Travis Els. He was currently residing in Chicago, Illinois, and now he came and took a call to First Reformed Church about a year ago here in Sioux Center, and he is a longtime friend of mine, running buddy. He can still beat me, but uh, I still love him. So invite him up, uh, give him a warm welcome. Well, good morning, everybody. It is... um it's a pleasure to worship with you, and uh, the longer I live in Sioux Center, Iowa, the more I appreciate this institution. Um, I've loved John for many years and have become uh, friends with Aaron and get to know more of you and just appreciate the influence that you have on this community. Um, we had most of our consistory, um, I think in the CRC you call it your council, but our elders and deacons were here along with most of our staff this last Saturday for the day of encouragement and just had an awesome day. And uh, so it's stuff like that. It is rare for a town this size to have, um, to have such an institution um, serving it and blessing it. And as pastor of First Reformed Church, I'm also grateful because um, several of you worship with us on a regular basis, and several more of you actually come several times a week and uh, serve our kids in the community through an after-school ministry called Kid Zone on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the zone with middle school-age kids on Mondays and Wednesdays, so, so thank you. Um, you're making uh, a profound impact on the people in this community. And I have to give one more shout out. Um, when I was in Chicago, we had a young man um, who was a part of our church, and uh, his name is Sam Rosskamp, and he is a freshman here at this institution, and so I was looking for Sam this morning. There's my brother, Sam Rosskamp. Good to see you, buddy. Um, and so we're glad to be here. It's kind of weird. Um, my wife is a She's a worship director at First Reformed Church. Sam was our drummer back in Chicago, and so when he comes and plays at first, um, my son plays bass guitar. We have our rhythm section and pianist from Chicago here in Sioux Center, which is really surreal and just kind of weird. So um, anyway, I am so glad to be here with you today and to be sharing uh, a subject matter that is important to me um, for reasons that I'll explain in just a little bit, but um, I want to start off by saying um, I am really excited about the theme or topic or whatever it is that Aaron is leading you all on this spring semester. And if I understand it correctly, um, you're asking some really good questions. If I could go back in time, what would I say to my old self? It's an awesome question. Um, or maybe simply, what questions do you wish were being asked now, but simply aren't being asked? And so you've come up with um, really good questions like, well, how am I supposed to figure out my calling in this world, or, or how do I actually experience God in a more profound way, um, or, or how do I become 
my truer or truest self? And how do I live for other people? These are all awesome questions. Um, and it, when, I, when I was listening to Aaron's first sermon here back um, that I think he kicked it off with in, in January, a quote came to mind from the, the great English novelist George Eliot. She wrote one time, it's never too late to be who you might have been. And so you're asking hard questions now, and uh, it's exciting for me as a 42-year-old man to look back and to, to wonder about these questions and to think about what I wish I knew when I was 18, 19, 20, 21 years old and in your seat. Um, so these are hopeful questions to look for a few, to the future, and, uh, and I get excited about when I see all of you and um, the way that you are going to lead and serve as the body of Jesus Christ in the world in years to come. And you're asking questions that I didn't even think about 20 years ago. So this morning, um, I'm not sure how much all this applies to what you're digging into, but um, uh, as a pastor, I come to you this morning with, uh, with theology, and I'm painting in some pretty broad brush strokes. My subject is idolatry. And uh, I don't know if you're asking any questions about idolatry or are in any way interested in the subject about, of idolatry, but I surely am. And I wish I'd have been wiser about it when I was a younger man. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are sent out into this beautiful and oftentimes very scary world as his ambassadors. And it's absolutely critical that we be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so I think idolatry fits into this to know what we're up against out in this scary, beautiful world. Now understand something that the first commandment of the Bible in the Ten Commandments is that you shall have no other gods before the living God. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And it was two Jewish theologians who said what's been said for a long time, that perhaps the central premise of the entire Bible is the rejection of idolatry. And I would even claim that from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, that is true. In fact, I just read a commentary on the book of Revelation by um, another British theologian by the name of Richard Baucom. And uh, he wrote a book called The Theology of the Book of Revelation. Wonderful book if you're curious about that sometimes often cryptic book. But he makes the claim as well that the book of Revelation is about idolatry. You're going to choose the living God or the empire you're going to worship the beast. And it's all over the place. And it was John Calvin, right? Um, one of our, our fathers in the Reformed faith who wrote in his institutes that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We produce idols all the time in our hearts. Andy Crouch wrote a really good book a few years ago called Playing Gods and playing God, and he said that human beings are awesome at making gods and playing God. We don't even have to think about it. We're awesome when it comes to making idols and bowing down to idols. Now, it's pretty easy to sort of categorically reject Calvin on this talk about idolatry because it seems like such an archaic term. I mean, who, who uses that term anymore anyway? It, for us, I think, conjures up images of totems and statues and golden calves and that sort of thing. And the last time I checked, nobody in Sioux Center, Iowa had a thriving business making golden calves or silver statuettes of Artemis or, or constructing Asherah poles. 
And so we dismiss it sort of as something else, something for the Old Testament that um, doesn't really apply at all to us. But Tim Keller actually helps us. He wrote a really good book again several years ago called Counterfeit Gods, and he asked the question, so, so what after all is an idol? Well, an idol is anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. So I've been preaching on idolatry um, since the first Sunday here in, in the new year, and um, I've been, been a little bit concerned about how well people are getting this, and particularly our younger people. Are they tracking with me at all as we talk about idolatry? And actually had an email from a, a young woman at our church. She's a freshman in high school, and this last week she said, I'm writing a paper on um, the destructiveness of obsession. And I want you to tell me a little bit more if you think there's a connectedness between idolatry and obsession. And I was so excited for her. I said, yeah, you got it. I mean, that's exactly it. Um, Obsession is highly and deeply related to idolatry. And she was making the connection. You know, it seems like at uh, Sioux Center High School that um, as a young woman, you know, there's almost an expectation that I would be obsessed with boys and basketball. And so you're boy crazy or you're basketball crazy. And what is that all about? And why is it that way? And she's exploring it. See, she's getting it, what idolatry is all about. But I think even another quote helps us to understand this. Um, Author by the name of Gerald May, and he wrote um, a wonderful book on addiction. And, And he said this, the same processes that are responsible for addiction to alcohol or narcotics are also responsible for addiction to ideas, work, relationships, power, moods, fantasies, and an endless variety of other things like boys and basketball. We are all addicts in every sense of the word. And addiction also makes us idolaters because it forces us to worship these objects of attachment, thereby preventing us from truly and freely loving God and loving one another. So the bad news I have for all you this morning is that we're all addicts. We're all obsessed with other things. We're all idolaters. So for me, um, as I began to think about this more seriously, I thought, okay, great. Um, But what's behind this idolatry? Um, Yeah, I mean, I can do this just fine all on my own, but, but it seems like there are almost forces at work that lead us to worship other things. And so... Here I went to, to the New Testament because Paul actually has a lot to say about this. And, and I found that there is a New Testament counterpart to a lot of the Old Testament language of idolatry. And it's this group called the Powers and Principalities. And Paul writes about it to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus chapter 6, or Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes to those Christians there, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what I think Paul is saying, that that these powers and principalities, they animate our idols. They, They establish themselves as things for us to worship and to bow down to. They they attempt to usurp. God's authority and his lordship in our lives. And so typically when we think about the powers and principalities, we think about angels and demons. 
And as we talk about powers, I surely believe that they are uh, personal, transcendent beings. And we've all seen the way that Hollywood portrays um, angels and demons and that kind of stuff. But I think there's far more to the powers and principalities. In fact, it was an old Dutch theologian by the name of Hendrik Burkhoff who believed that, that the powers are any of the isms or ologies that we set up as a final authority in our lives. So whether it's capitalism or communism or democracy or, or law or national security or just power in general, these things become gods to us and we end up bowing down to them and we make them gods. So think about idols and the powers. We, again, we have a proclivity to idolatry. We don't need to even think about it. It comes very naturally to us. We worship things that are not God. And that emerges out of the rebellion of the human heart, right? We are, all of us, in bondage to sin. And so we worship things. And there are, adding to that, there are forces at work in the world eager to lead us in ways that are antithetical to God's ways. They set themselves up as God to us. And that's the kind of world we live in. We're swimming in it. It's a rebel kingdom. And in fact, again, Paul recognizes this. He writes to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians 4.4. The apostle Paul refers to the God of this age. It's Satan who's in the air that we breathe in so many ways. And, and Paul, in fact, makes this really weird statement um, a couple times as a church in Corinth and then again to the church in Ephesus. He's talking about um, uh, a person in the church. He says, um, hand them over to Satan. And it's this really weird text that we usually then ignore. What in the world is Paul talking about? He's saying, kick them out of the church because outside of the church is the realm of Satan. It's the realm of darkness and these, these forces of evil that are at work in the world to lead us in ways that are antithetical to the kingdom of God. They would have us worship them and not worship the one true living God. That's what we're in for. And we can't afford to be naive about it. So again, when we read all this stuff, and maybe when you hear all this stuff, um, you have then the idea that maybe we need to peek behind every bush and tree to find the little guy with horns and bright red skin and who holds on to a pitchfork. But again, here in Sioux Center, Iowa, of all places, this may be the epicenter of the the Iowa Bible Belt. Um, What do you think, what do you think would happen if somebody put up an Asherah pole on um, the highest piece of ground outside of Sioux Center? Well, I believe that you'd have an army of people with chainsaws there ready to cut the thing down. Same thing if someone put in an, an inverted pentagram right over their front door. Um, first of all, we'd be creeped out and then people would intervene in probably the same way. What if you saw a sort of exorcist-like demon possession in the dorms here at Dort or at a home in your neighborhood Um, we would surely in Sioux Center have an army of people who would be all over that and they'd be praying like crazy. In fact, I get the sense that there are a number of people in this community who are jonesing for a straight up fight with the powers of darkness. That's what I believe. If only it were that easy. 
Because I believe Satan is actually a little bit smarter than all that. And he loves to deceive us. So I believe that um, as we don't talk much about idolatry, because it seems so archaic, and, and we're just disenchanted enough to not give too much thought to the powers and principalities, except for that which we might choose to be entertained by in the movie theater, um, that maybe we need to be wise about something else. So what in the world am I talking about? What in the world am I talking about, and why in the world would I choose this as a subject for Dork College Chapel? Well, um, let me just tell you this. Um, At First Reformed Church, right here in town, where I'm pastor, I'm suggesting to our people that, yeah, it's not so much about Asherah poles and golden calves. It's not so much about angels and demons lurking behind every bush. Um, Maybe it's far more subtle, this whole idolatry thing. And so um, last fall, I started a little project. I sent out a survey and I followed that up with small group discussions to begin asking people, what is it that gives life, hope, and happiness to you? And then I followed up that question with another question. How do you think we distort these good things that God has made and how do we make them into ultimate things? And what emerged was really rather fascinating. We found that there are a number of things that we make ultimate without even thinking about it. Without giving it any consideration, it comes natural to us. And I'll tell you what, we came up with five things that we discerned were very likely potential idols in our congregation and in our community. We said the idol of family, making family ultimate in your life. We said the idol of wealth. We said the idol of community pride. Right? Thinking that Sioux Center, Iowa is the center of the universe. We said it's the idol of work ethic, right? Because they're mostly uh, Dutch folks in this area who know how to work and they work really hard and one's status is largely determined by their work, right? And then we said the idol of religion. The church becomes an idol to us so easily. And if you want to hear more about that, come March 1. I'm going to close this all up with that sermon at first. Anything that becomes to us more important than God is an idol. Anything that we look to to find identity, security, and hope is to us an idol. So what does that look like for you? Well, you're students at this wonderful, prestigious college, and you're working really hard in your studies. Probably not too difficult for your schoolwork for your studies to become an idol to you, for your studies to captivate and capture your heart to the extent that God becomes secondary. Not because you want it to be that way, but because that's just the way it is. And all of your time and energy and passion and emotion gets poured in to doing the work so you can get good grades, you can get a good job, and all the rest. Make lots of money and live the American dream, or whatever that looks like, right? I'm reading a book right now, actually, I'm I'm looking at you artists and musicians and those of you who maybe are not going to be so captivated by your schoolwork or or getting the great job, but I'm reading a book right now, it's called Shaky, and it's a biography of the musician Neil Young, and here again, I'm dating myself, but um, Neil Young is a singer-songwriter from Canada, and um, he is now sort of still a very gifted but but aging hipster. And he was just on Jimmy Fallon, watch it, he sings one of his great songs. But in this biography, I just read this and it crushes my spirit because this guy has bowed down for his entire life to the God of music, to his art. 
He's what, 70 years old? He has everything and he has nothing. He has his art. And that's it. He's made it as God. Those of you who, again, look ahead, you're going to find a good job. And you're going to find very quickly when you get out of college that um, work isn't nearly as much fun as it maybe seems it might appear. From this vantage point, stay in school as long as you can. Um, But once you do start working, you're going to find that um, it demands so much of your time and energy And um, again, without even trying, your work's going to become your job. And you're going to be thinking in unconscious ways about status and wealth and things that you need to have. Here's another one, again, thinking more broadly um, for us as a country. And this is going to be probably a little offensive. Um, I think um, one of the things that we've done as a country is we've made national security into a god. Um, and, and, And answer this question, is there anybody we wouldn't bomb? For the sake of national security. Is there anybody we wouldn't murder? For the sake of national security. Do you think maybe that's become a God to us? Technology. It's an easy one, right? Pretty easy to, to need every latest gadget. Or to look to Wikipedia to answer all of life's questions. I guess. Um, I think you have in your library here at Dort a wonderful a 10-part miniseries that was produced for Polish television, obscure reference, um, back in the 1990s by director Krzysztof Kozlowski. It was a um, great series called The Decalogue. And he patterns each episode on one of the Ten Commandments. The very first one, you shall have no other God before me. It's about a man who puts all of his faith into his home computer and it results in a tragedy. I don't need to tell you that we live in a hyper-sexualized culture where we have Um, in so many ways, made sex into a God. We're saturated with it. All you earnest pre-sem and religion majors, as reformers, do you think sometimes we've turned our theology into a God? That maybe our theology, our right theology saves us? Do it all the time. All these things become idols to us. We bow down to them. We put our hope and our happiness and in, in our very identity into these things, which all of them, I would say, are good things, but have been distorted to where they capture our hearts, our passion. It was um, James Smith, I think, quoting Augustine, who said that um, we love what we worship and we worship what we love. And man, if you do a serious heart check, you'll probably find pretty quickly that there are lots of things that you're worshiping, and most of them are not God. So, what do we do? In fact, what are the practices of faithfulness that we need to help us to resist idolatry. Well, the first thing is this, in understanding the gospel. In fact, it is central. It is primary. Um, It's probably the first and the last thing we need to know. Um, Paul again writes to the church, um, this gathering in Colossae, and he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were idolaters, when you were captivated by the, the powers and principalities of this dark world, God came to you and he made you alive in Jesus Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus defeated the powers. Jesus rescues us from our idolatry. And all we have to do is look at the cross of Jesus Christ to know that he died for us, that he saved us from our sin and freed us from the bondage that we are in, that we would actually love God and love each other. And he did it by completely disarming the powers and principalities. How? By becoming utterly weak and vulnerable. And that's the image we have with Christ on the cross, right? The power of the empire over here with all that it promises, right? Wealth, status, money, identity, um, beauty, sex, whatever else it is, that's over here. And that's what actually put Jesus on the cross. And this was his answer, his broken body and his shed blood. For you and for me, not because we wanted it, not because we deserved it, not because we asked for it, but because he loves you and he loves me. And that's been God's plan since Adam and Eve first screwed it up so long ago. It's to rescue us and to redeem us and to redeem all these things we've already talked about, like technology and work and wealth and family and everything else so that we actually wouldn't bow down to those things and worship them, but they would find their proper place in our lives. Because we never say about any of that stuff, we just go away, we don't become you know, aesthetics living out in the desert, denying all these things. These are good things that God has given to us as a gift, but they need to find their proper place and they're only gonna find their proper place when we worship God and God alone. And so, what do you do? Well. Yeah, and in hopes that you will be wise and not naive and figure this out in your late teens and early 20s instead of much later, um, know that you're in a battle. Know that, that this world is filled with idols and filled with forces who are trying to entice you towards idolatry. Be wise as serpents. Know what you're up against. Now, Paul uses this battle language and maybe this warmongering kind of um, language makes us a bit squeamish and offensive um, to our 21st century sensibilities, but, but yeah, it's kind of what it is. It is a battle. But also understand that it's Jesus who goes before us and Jesus who fights, in fact, has already, de- already defeated the powers. And so that means we come, we just worship. What we did here 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, whatever it's been, Every day, we worship the one true living God. We remember the gospel. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that, that gets our feet planted on solid ground. We understand who we are and what we are called to. So we worship. And we know that we're loved. Loved by God in and through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit And in that love, we're actually free to love God and love each other. And then I think it also follows up with something um, that uh, is even more tangible yet. It's, It's a life of service. It's living out who we are in Jesus Christ by loving and serving other people. That's why, again, it gives me such joy when I see so many, some of you who come and bless these little kids that are after school ministry. And I know so many of you are going out over spring break to do service projects. 
continue to shape your life around serving and serve in the local congregation. Um, the local church is, uh, seems increasingly becoming kind of outre, right? Kind of um, unfashionable. No. Learn what it means to worship and to love and to serve in the local church. Be a part of the church here in your college days, but certainly as you leave this place. Worship the living God. Serve the living God. Love God and love each other. And know that you're in a battle. So pray like crazy as you go. Let's pray now. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good to us because you rescue us and you free us from our bondage to sin, our proclivity to idolatry, our our need to fill that God-shaped void in our lives with with things that are not you, God. You come to us, you enter in to our pain and our need, and you give us everything that we need. And in your son Jesus, you give us full, abundant life. A life that leads to joy and freedom, to love and to serve, to worship rightly, to be selfless, to not, to not fall prey to power trips and coercion and dominance, but actually give freely and fully of ourselves in service to the kingdom, your kingdom, which is breaking out all around us. And so God, today we're not going to be afraid because you know that you, we know that you go before us. And so we will rejoice, we will be confident, and we will worship you. Lord, help us, lead us, and conform us according to your will and ways. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.